3: The so Black Death for me is such an interesting subject because it impacts on every part of medieval life, from politics to the economy to the experience of really ordinary people to their worldview.
4: The third quarter of the 14th century as they tried to make sense of this and cope with it and all these rapid changes has to be the most fascinating quarter century in documented human history.
0: Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, The Black Death. I'm Ellie Cawthorne and this is our final episode. The Black Death was a pandemic that cast a long shadow, one that stretched over centuries to come, altering economies, industry, culture and even the basic structure of societies. Trying to adequately discuss all the ripples of this medieval pandemic across the globe would be a pretty ambitious job for one podcast episode. So today, we're going to be focusing on England, using it as a case study to reveal some of the different ways in which the Black Death changed the medieval world for good. To tell us more, I spoke to two experts in this area, Dr Claire Kennan and Professor Mark Bailey. Claire is a medieval historian at the Bader International Study Centre, specialising in Britain between 1300 and 1500. And Mark is a professor of late medieval history at the University of East Anglia. He's also the author of After the Black Death, Economy, Society and the Law in 14th Century England. First of all, in order to look at the aftermath of the Black Death, we need to know what should we see as its end point?
4: Once it arrives in a a particular place in Europe, it it lasts about three to six months, and then it it seems to disappear. So so there's a a shock for a three to six-month period, and, and, and then it goes. Of course, it then returns in 1361, 1362 in England, 1369, 1373, 15 national epidemics in the 15th century and in the 16th century. So it's important to distinguish between the Black Death outbreak, the first epidemic of this great pandemic in the middle of the 14th century. But it's also important to realise that the plague doesn't disappear from Northwestern Europe until the 18th century. It continues in Egypt uh, and Moscow right down into the 19th century.
0: OK. So it's not so simple to talk about an end of the Black Death. This was something that returned in waves and rolled on down the centuries. But that first wave that Mark spoke about there had a huge impact, and that's what we'll focus on here. Of course, one of the most obvious immediate effects was a huge drop in population levels.
3: So after the Black Death had ripped through communities, I mean, the most immediate impact is just the death toll. We're looking at anywhere between 50-60% of the population. There are variations in this. Some communities seem to have been less affected than others. So, for example, in Milan, there is one chronicle that says that it was just one whole household that caught the Black Death, and they managed to successfully contain the disease. But in other places, entire villages could almost be wiped out. And this leaves a huge problem for the economy because suddenly we have half the amount of workers that we did before, but we've got the same amount of work that needs to be done. So there is definitely a crisis um, in the agricultural sector, but also as well in towns and cities where you've got lots of manufacturing work taking place. With continuing waves of
0: plague hitting Europe, This population decline was felt for centuries.
4: The experience of such a high and persistent regime of epidemic mortality means that European population um, doesn't really recover to its pre-Black Death, early 14th century levels until something like the 17th century.
0: Let's return to the more immediate short-term impact of the Black Death for a second... In our first episode, the historian John Hatcher described the pandemic as a whacking great hammer blow to societies. And that was partly because there were other exacerbating factors that delayed recovery in the 1340s and 50s.
4: If you're talking about the first epidemic, I would argue that the the crisis that it triggers, that Claire's just described, doesn't properly abate until 1353 because 1349 is um, an extremely cold and wet summer and the harvest failure because of the poor weather and that's exacerbated by the shortage of labourers to bring the harvest in uh, and then in 1350 the harvest fails catastrophically again and then it does the same in 1351 it does the same in 1352 you have th- the only known occasion in the last millennium of four back-to-back catastrophic harvest failures in Northwest Europe. And that's because this coincides with the coldest snap ever recorded in the last millennium in Northern Europe and in Greenland. So, it is exceptionally cold, and, and that delays the recovery. So things like basic foodstuffs, the prices of grain, is, is, is two and a half times what it was before the plague until the early 1350s. The cost of, of metal increases threefold. The cost of salt increases fourfold in northwest Europe between 1348 and 1352. Now, salt, of course, is essential for preserving food... But its shortage is partly because of the shortage of labourers, but it's mainly because of a shortage of solar radiation, that there's a nuclear winter coinciding with the arrival of this disease. And that delays the ability of communities to recover. So I don't think it's until 1353, 1354, before you get any semblance of normality in many communities.
0: So we have a nuclear winter coinciding with a global pandemic. Was that just terrible luck or did these two crises feed into each other in any way?
4: It's a really complex combination. There's extreme weather taking place, Um, so extreme there was nothing like it in the last 1,000 years. Now that is a Coincidence. It, maybe there is an element of causation, but we don't know what it is at the moment. That's a coincidence. But but when you have on top of that all of the, the shortage of labour, the disruption to markets, who's producing food? How do you sell it? Um, have you got enough to feed yourself? Let alone to produce for other people? And of course, this amplifies both the disruption, the sense of fear, and the ability of communities to to adjust to what is a dramatic supply-side shock, the loss of half of the tenants and half of the labourers in in society.
0: Those first few years after the initial wave of Black Death saw medieval people trying to tackle the millions of small crises that the pandemic had left behind, whether that was crops with no-one to harvest them, businesses with no-one to run them, or children with no parents to care for them.
4: In many places, you see a fairly rapid uptake of land, because, of course, land is key source of, of wealth and status. In, in some cases, you get orphans who are are. are granted guardians until they come of age to help them. Um, There's an increase in the proportion of women taking up land in rural villages um, because of the death of male heirs. Um, But but the the take-up is is really quite dramatic. And and by the early 1350s, you get a sense that even though the population has halved, uh, much of the land has been uh, reoccupied. So that's moving quickly. But, but in things like extractive industries, the construction industry, it's hit for years because you've lost skilled masons. Um, the extractive industries uh, are short of labour. Things like stone quarrying and, and mining uh, are disrupted for years and years.
0: But some of the economic effects were more unexpected.
4: In the 1350 and 1351, there's a huge increase in in ale consumption per head, uh, and as a consequence, the price of ale increases. Now, this is not some massive binge in in the wake of of, of the catastrophe. Uh, Ale is the main source of carbohydrate and fluid uh, for ordinary people. So it's an important part of basic foodstuffs. And survivors are actually consuming more. And, and there's a sense that, that, that the provision of ale and, and, and bread is, is actually, the quality is improving very quickly after the black death. So you've got this sort of extraordinary two-paced element between some sectors that are badly hit and others that are picking up remarkably quickly. And what it reflects is all of those difficulties of adjustment, of sudden shifting consumption patterns, um, additional disruptions to supply, the types of things that we've seen in COVID, you know, sudden shifting of, of, of supply and demand. But here, of course, you've got a much more imperfect market economy, so the signals are, are slower, people are picking them up less, less quickly. There, there's a time lag of adjustment that just takes a few years rather than a few weeks or a few months.
0: Another area of the economy that was drastically affected was trade.
3: In the immediate aftermath there would have been sort of a slight closing down of trade because people are very concerned about providing for themselves, producing for themselves. A lot of craftsmen, skilled craftsmen, skilled labourers were killed off with the Black Death. But in the longer term, you do see trade opening up again. We also see a consumer boom in that later period because as people do have more surplus income, they can buy beyond their basic subsistence needs And they they want nicer things. They want higher quality things. So we have interesting crafts and trades developing.
0: Empty jobs needed someone to fill them. And labour shortages inevitably opened up employment opportunities for new types of people.
3: We have increased migration in and around Europe as well. So, for example, we have lots of cloth workers from the low countries coming across To England, uh, particularly from the 1370s onwards, and and working over here. And we also see lots of women engaging in trade in new and exciting ways. So, um, Caroline Barron has worked on some fantastic research which shows that in the period after the Black Death, about a third of all apprentices in London were women. And this is obviously. Because we've got this labour shortage, and you see similar things with other catastrophes throughout history. The same happened after World War I, for example. And usually in the Middle Ages, women were defined by their closest male relatives, say so your father, then your husband. And normally it's only widows who can really have any sort of degree of economic clout. But in this period after the Black Death, We have got women trading as, you know, individuals in their own right. And that's quite fascinating.
0: But not everyone was happy about who was filling the posts left empty by the pandemic.
3: And we get this complaint in other sectors as well. The clergy is a big example where you've suddenly got this influx of new people trying to fill these jobs you do get complaints about a deterioration in quality and standards and training because an apprenticeship was a long process and, you know, we're trying to fill this void quickly. So there becomes a lot more of craft and guild regulation around sort of trading standards, manufacturing standards. In certain areas, they try to block foreign crafts and tradesmen coming in. So it's in similar ways we've got these kind of two parallel things running again, where, you know, in some cases, yes, trade is contracting. People are more worried about providing for themselves. But then in other areas, things are taking off and we're we're seeing this expansion in trade and in different manufacturing sectors. Historian Caroline Barron,
0: who Claire mentioned there, has found several interesting examples of women taking over responsibility for their household economy or industry following the death of a male relative. She's found examples of women becoming apprentices or even taking them on. And for these women, at least, this must have seemed an era of unrivaled economic opportunity. But while all of these aspects of English society were shifting and changing, there was one element of medieval life that remained remarkably constant. The desire to wage war. At the time of the Black Death, England and France were engaged in a series of conflicts that would become known as the Hundred Years' War. And before long, military ventures were back up and running.
4: Edward III continues his dynastic claims to the French throne as if um, plague had never occurred. And in, indeed, the Black Prince is mobilising what resources he can uh, on his estates throughout England to try and fund uh, the next phase of the campaign, which is the Poitiers campaign of 1356. It culminates in the Reims campaign of 1359-1360. Um, so, so the England and France continue to fight wars as if plague hasn't taken place.
0: So the wheels of war quickly began to churn again. But can we identify any ways in which the pandemic did change military endeavours?
4: On the eve of the Black Death is the Battle of Crecy in 1346, where the, the political and social elite of France is wiped out uh, in one battle, principally by all ordinary men with longbows and and it's possible to argue that the old days of of a great military highly trained elite requiring substantial resources to support them in order to defend and provide justice is significantly under, undermined because relatively untrained people from the lower orders of society were responsible through the longbow for wiping them out then along comes the black death and creates Monumental labor shortages, and it throws the sort of economic and political power down the social scale. And there is a crisis of ideology, social ideology, and there is also, I think, a crisis of confidence uh, amongst the aristocracy. Because you you get two events, one military and one demographic, a profound demographic event, which reinforces that the, the old orders and the old social certainties have been turned upside down.
0: And that idea of an old order being turned upside down is one that will make several appearances in this episode. But while Edward III may have ploughed on with war in France like nothing had changed, of course, the social and economic landscape of his country had changed and it had changed a lot. And more military expenditure meant more of something else too.
4: The big challenge there is taxation. And the other remarkable thing about the 1350s is that the English crown continues to tax its subjects as if plague had never happened. As a consequence, the direct taxation per head triples or quadruples between the 1340s and the 1350s. So if you survive the Black Death, you are better off in in many ways, but you've been taxed uh, as well. Actually, the English crown copes in the 1350s. The French crown doesn't and and suffers uh, a crisis of of both legitimacy uh, and also a very serious popular revolt in 1357. The English crown is hugely successful in pursuing war until 1360, and thereafter, actually, war in the way that it had been pursued before the Black Death is now monumentally expansive and pretty much beyond the ability of the English Crown to fund it. Uh, but that long-term consequence only becomes apparent after, after a while.
3: What is interesting is the you know the idea that we we see monarchs trying to keep taxes going as though we haven't had half the population wiped out and you know as mark was just saying that does culminate in various rebellions and revolts across europe actually and in the later middle ages sort particularly the second half of the 14th century there are a wave of different revolts that all have slightly different starting points and catalysts but generally it is people are angry about the higher taxation, various sort of political and, and foreign policies, and they are feeling like they want to have a voice because we have the sense of rising aspiration. People are generally better off. People are able to move up um, through society. So you have the Ciompi in Florence where Members of various trades who can't belong to a guild and then don't have a voice in government get really angry. And we have a series of rebellions. We, of course, have the very famous peasants or Great Revolt of 1381 over here. And that's caused by a combination of excessive taxation that Richard II introduces. And, of course, the long term social and economic impact of the Black Death. So it's quite a tumultuous time across Europe. And we can certainly see the roots of all of that in the Black Death.
0: How does this tally with the idea we discussed earlier, that this was an age of opportunity, when more jobs opened up, people had more disposable income and were drinking more calorie-rich ale than ever before? Where do the waves of unrest and the revolts of the later 14th century sit alongside that?
4: Burdens that have been in part alleviated but are then you suffer from frustrated, ex- rising expectations are much harder to, to accept than when you have burdens that are unremittingly heavy. So it's, it's when you get that increase in social aspirations and then there's the frustration. And for me, the Peasants' Revolt is, is the triggers, the tax, but it's actually the real issue is the complex implementation of a dramatic increase in government intervention in, in commodity and labor markets, and, and the sense of unfairness about that, and the way in which it lingers on. And it's, it's tied in with political irritation about the way the war is going, the cost of the war. And so there's, there's, there's a considerable political and legal awareness amongst the the English population, and indeed elsewhere in Northwest Europe, that's part and parcel of creating a tension that dissolves the old social bonds. This episode is
1: brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
0: This was clearly a tumultuous time, when it felt like the structure of society was slippery and unstable. Another huge shift that's often laid at the door of the Black Death was the collapse of the feudal system. So let's start with a bit of background here. What exactly was feudalism? And how was it shaping English society when the Black Death arrived?
3: So feudalism, before I explain what it is, I should say that not all historians agree that this existed. This is a hotly debated topic, but in very, very basic terms to understand the feudal structure, the king is in charge of everything. He owns everything. And he then parcels out large pieces of land to his barons and the upper nobility in return, usually for military service or payment in lieu of military service. In turn, these barons can then parcel out bits of their land to knights of the shire and lesser lesser gentry, who in return will give military service or payment in lieu of that military service, and so on and so forth, until you get to the very sort of bottom level of society, which is your your agricultural workers, um, your serfs, and... Even within these groups, there are sort of divisions between workers who pay for their, their rent and their land in money to their lords and those who owe what we call a feudal service, feudal dues. So they have to give so many days of labor. They have to give so much of their crops to their lord. And with this comes some very harsh rules and regulations. For example, You can't just get married to whoever you want, when you want. You have to seek your lord's permission. If you have a son who wants to inherit when you die, there is a certain payment that has to be made. So it's a very complex structure that is often represented as a pyramid, but I would certainly argue it's much more messy than that.
0: And this feudal system was deeply internalised by those operating within it.
4: Now, essentially on the eve, eve of the Black Death to, to, to caricature you have societies that are based on social obligations and social ideology and you accept your place within society and the, the role of the lower order society is is to labor and to work to support the fighters and the prayers. economic forces and contracts don't really apply here it's, it's, it's about social obligations this system is divinely ordained.
0: So feudalism ran deep within the structure of English society, but the pandemic saw the foundations of this deeply ingrained system
4: begin to crumble. The remarkable thing about the Black Death is that it, it, it shakes that to its core, because suddenly land is abundant and labour is scarce, and, and there are two options under that set of circumstances. One is you reimpose serfdom and feudalism and force the lower orders to work on your land and on terms that are favourable to you. You force them to do so, which is effectively serfdom. It's a social relationship, not an economic relationship, put crudely. Or market forces prevail. And if market forces prevail... Land values are collapsing. Labour is increasing in value. You have to pay it more. uh, And they're becoming more mobile, greater migration. In other words, serfdom dissolves.
0: Talking about the dissolution of a social structure can feel fairly abstract. So what would this actually look like for people on the ground in the 14th century? The landowners and workers who were involved in negotiations over land, labour dues and wages
4: in the 1350s that there is a predictable oppressive response by landlords who are trying to prevent serfs from moving out of the village, who are trying to force them to hold land on terms favourable to the lord rather than to to the serf, and are trying to reimpose things like the the, the marriage fines. Serfs can resist uh, overtly by refusing to work for the lord. Better to do that collectively than individually because you've got greater strength there. Some of them just leave the manor and you leave the manor, what's the Lord going to do? And, and, and this is where there's there are multiple tensions and testing of the bounds collectively and individually between lords and serfs. You leave the manor, you're not allowed to, you go off to a town, find work, what's your Lord going to do? Now in law and in theory the Lord has many powers, in practice they do very little sometimes they they try to seize the serf and bring them back, other times they don't. If you're a serf who wants to stay, but you don't like the terms on which the Lord's offering the land, you can threaten to go to another lord and, and work there instead or you can get land from another lord who is making concessions and what what happens is is that some lords are quite oppressive in trying to reinforce it some serfs are quite passive most lords are pragmatic in england and they're making concessions rapidly and and i would argue get a growth of contractual tenures monetarized contractual tenures replacing the old feudal tenures in the 1350s and the 1360s. To me, this is one of the big watersheds, the most understated and important aspects uh, of of the Black Death. You get a a sort of set of tensions and negotiations and passive resistance and overt uh, confrontation. And the net result of all of that is that serfdom is rapidly dissolving.
0: We're looking at England as a case study in this episode. But of course, the thing with a case study is that it never maps neatly onto experiences elsewhere. And this is especially true with serfdom because while the system began to crumble in England, elsewhere it was solidified
4: in certain parts of Europe, under conditions of labour scarcity, serfdom is either maintained or reinforced. In other parts of Europe, under the same conditions of of labour scarcity, serfdom dissolves. To just put it crudely, serfdom disappears after the Black Death in in England. 50% of the population are servile in 1340, no more than 10% in 1400. So it, it dissolves rapidly after the Black Death in England in Eastern Russia serfdom is maintained and the big difference in England say Russia is that there are manifold employment opportunities and manifold opportunities close to you to get another to get another job to get land from somebody who's gone off for a decent term in in Russia you had much bigger estates fewer towns and therefore there were fewer outside options for serfs so it's a combination of oppression Aggression by, by serfs, but, but also a whole host of broader opportunities available to serfs that means that lords in, in western, Northwestern western Europe simply cannot maintain serfdom because it's already unravelling. In, in Russia, lords have got much greater opportunity of, of enforcing because there are fewer outside opportunities. So the cost-effectiveness of enforcing serfdom uh, is lower.
0: And the consequences of this shaped the way that Europe would develop for centuries.
4: Uh, and as a consequence, Russia adopts uh, a completely different role to modernity, a different pathway to, to, to modernity. It, it's an serf society until the middle of the 19th century. Serfdom has to be removed by decree, and Russia, uh, if, you, if you like, enters modernity through state socialism and forced industrialisation. Whereas in Western Europe, serfdom dissolves, and as a consequence, you get the opening up of land And labour markets, which become increasingly controlled by contracts, not by social obligation. And as a consequence, you're taking the first tentative steps towards modernity through an evolutionary route rather than a much later forced revolutionary route.
0: And this highlights a wider issue, that the long-term effects plague had on England were very different to those felt elsewhere. Claire and Mark have revealed a really complex picture of life in the years and decades after the Black Death. On the one hand, they've told us about new economic opportunities and a shaking up of society. On the other, we have higher taxation and violent revolts. So what do our experts think? Were most people better or worse off after the Black Death?
4: The same Demographic experience, loss of 50% of the population, results in significantly different outcomes over the next 100 years. In Egypt, it, it results in the collapse of the Nile irrigation system and a reversion to tribalism, and as a consequence wealth per head is 40% lower than it had been before the Black Death. In England, wealth per head is 30% higher than before the Black Death. So 100 years on in in, in Northwest Europe, the Black Death is a creative, destructive force. In other parts of, of Europe and Africa, it's a destructive, destructive force. And it's the way in which the same demographic experience percolates differently through a whole host of cultural social uh, religious and 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 economic and legal filters that that explains those different outcomes and is the and is the fascination of the subject
3: after the black Death I would say that generally speaking and I mean very generally most people were better off the obvious sort of group in society that weren't were the landowners because as we've explored you know they didn't have enough people to work the land we do see um landowners struggling things like mills and various buildings being left vacant and that sort of really comes out in the 1370s but for ordinary people for workers for agricultural labors for tradesmen this is certainly a time when life is better And actually, one of the ways that this plays out really interestingly is um, through the parish. So often when we talk about the Black Death, we don't think about the parish and the impact that it had. But because people have more money and because of the development of the doctrine of purgatory, where people were trying to offset sin during their lifetimes... They start to pour enormous amounts of money into their parish church. And some of the most stunning medieval churches that survive today are from that sort of one to 200 year period after the Black Death. And it's not really the the gentry and the nobility that are investing. It's ordinary people. And so that can really be seen as an indicator of improvements in standards of living, in wages, in surplus wealth. I mean, some historians do argue that really for ordinary people, they have purchasing power that's not rivaled until, you know, after the Second World War. So for ordinary people who make up the majority of the population, I would definitely say that this is is a better time to be alive than previously. But of course,
0: as always, there's a catch.
4: After the Black Death, the the vast majority of the population are better off. There is a reduction in wealth inequality, which is one of the great paradoxes of of pandemics. They're better paid. What they earn goes further. There's more work available. Um, There's more land available. And the choice and opportunities available to them are are, are much greater. Uh, And in this sense, I think they are better off. In in the quarter century after the Black Death, the 1350s, 1360s, there's higher taxation. The government is intervening in the labour market in a way that it's never done before. It's trying to regulate the commodities market in a way it's never done before. And that's causing huge tension. Tax per head uh, is three to four times uh, greater. And you're terrified. You're terrified about is it, is it coming back and and is is this divine retribution is it the end of the world so that there's a whole host of of qualitative and quantitative gains and 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 losses that I think they're balancing and you you wonder why why do people study the Black Death. The third quarter of the 14th century, as they try to make sense of this and cope with it and all these rapid changes, has to be the most fascinating quarter century in in documented human history. And I would say that because I study it. Mark
0: raised a really interesting point there about quantitative impacts and qualitative impacts of the Black Death. While it's fairly easy with a decent amount of work, to chart the changing price of ale or the breakdown of land holdings, it's much less simple to assess the psychological impact of this pandemic. And that's something that also needs to be taken into consideration.
3: Particularly since the arrival of our own global pandemic, we've been much more connected with the people of the medieval past and we're looking into things like the psychological impact and the emotional response to the Black Death in perhaps slightly new and different ways but this would have been a hugely terrifying event for people this disease was seen really as sort of God casting down his wrath on mankind Um, we have chronicle descriptions that say you know there were not enough people alive to bury the dead only a tenth of mankind was left so it does feel like the coming of the apocalypse and we have people such as you know King Edward III of England writing about the loss of his daughter, his beloved daughter, Princess Joan. And he talks about how destructive death has snatched her from him. We have examples of families across the country where they're completely wiped out in a matter of months. So up in Derbyshire, the uh, the Wakebridge family, William de Wakebridge actually loses his father, his wife, his two brothers, his two sisters and his sister-in-law in three short months. And that story would have been echoed across the country. You also see the Black Death becoming much more prevalent in sort of popular responses, popular culture. You can see it expressed in art, in literature, and that's something that that persists in that first century after the pandemic initially hits.
0: As an event that happened more than 650 years ago, it seems like the Black Death should feel distant to us. But as Claire and Mark told me... And as I hope this series has demonstrated, its impact can still be felt today.
3: One important thing we've not mentioned is that you can still catch the Black Death. In 2020, there were cases reported in China. In the USA, I believe, on average, it's about six or seven cases are reported a year. Uh, But before anyone panics, you can get treated quite easily with antibiotics now, which is great. But the, the Black Death's had a huge mark on popular culture. It's still brings up those you know feelings of horror and terror it's still with us today we still use the term plague you know the fact that as soon as coronavirus hits we were immediately looking back to the black death and making comparisons with these two global pandemics so it's certainly still very much in popular consciousness today i would say
4: For me, the long-term implications of the Black Death are simple and fourfold. The first is, it's the first documented occasion when a government intervenes decisively to protect the welfare of its peoples. It it wasn't in health interventions, it is now, but but it was actually for their moral health rather than for their physical health. So one, it establishes that governments should intervene at times of significant crisis to protect the welfare of their peoples. The second is there is an increase in the understanding and use of quarantining over the course of the next century or so, and the, the, the stopping the movement of peoples at times of pandemics, which is something that has as, is is now widespread, r- really took off. It wasn't entirely novel, but it took off in this period. The third thing is that it heightens our need to understand better the interrelationship between environmental change and rapid climate change and pathogenic mutation activities and and the role of vectors and vector populations and host populations, how they change with climate change and therefore create a different paradigm in which um, pathogens might develop. And the fourth area is that it just keeps reminding us that, Pandemics aren't new. Humans have been dealing with it for millennia. Um, So in that sense, it gives us a sense of perspective.
0: And perhaps looking at how societies did recover from the Black Death can offer a glimmer of hope for today.
4: It shows is that there is pain and despair. There's also opportunity. The opportunities, however, are shaped by personal issues, by government, by institutions, and by entitlement, where your starting point is as as well. And and I think one thing uh, from the Black Death is is that it benefited the lower orders of society. And and in some ways, that was fortuitous. Uh, Hopefully, after COVID, we can promote greater equality um, through more direct and targeted social and governmental intervention?
3: I think it is starting to feel more hopeful. I think one thing we can do when we look back at history is, you know, we had this terrible pandemic and first arrived in 1348 in England, but the country did recover. We lost a lot of life, but the country did recover. People did continue in their lives and things did eventually get better. They built up an immunity so that when the waves of plague kept coming back, The mortality rates weren't so horrific as they had once been. So I think in that sense we can look back and feel that there is light at the end of the tunnel and we will be able to to make it through.
0: Thanks for listening. This was the final episode of this History Extra series on the Black Death. The series was produced by Jack Bateman with additional checks by rob blackmore and rob attar many thanks to all the experts i spoke to in this series john hatcher monica h green samuel Cohn, elma brenner helen carr mark bailey and claire kennan and if you'd like to read more of the original sources that were quoted in this series you can find out more about where they came from in the episode descriptions of each podcast